If you would, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to, to turn to John chapter 21. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, you can follow along in the bulletin as well. Um, we're going to continue our look at uh, following the ups and downs of what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to do that by looking at John uh, chapter 21 this morning. Uh, one of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to read that at some point in your life. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, it's a powerful children's book uh, that was written by none other than C.S. Lewis. And he used uh, the, the genre of children's literature to exemplify many of the themes uh, of the gospel and the themes of the scripture. And if you've ever read it, you'll know that uh, the God figure in these books is a lion uh, whose name is Aslan, and the story follows four children uh, who are caught up in this drama, and one child in particular, uh, a child named Edmund, uh, plays the role of betrayer. Uh, he betrays his brother and his sisters. He betrays Aslan and all the other characters that are around him. But at one point, he becomes very remorseful of his betrayal, and of course, the rest of them, everybody else around them, uh, need to stage a rescue of Edmund. And so uh, they rescue Edmund, but the cost of his rescue would be great. Uh, Aslan himself would need to sacrifice himself in order for Edmund, the betrayer, to be rescued. Uh, before that sacrifice happens, they rescue Edmund and uh, they bring him back into the camp and Aslan wants to have a conversation with the now remorseful Edmund. And they have a conversation just after breakfast and Lewis writes this. As soon as they had breakfasted, they all went out and there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass apart from the rest of the court. There's no need to tell you, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund would never forget. As the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. Here is your brother, he said, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Our passage this morning tells another story about a betrayer, and a conversation that changed his life, which also happened after a breakfast meal. And so I'm going to be reading from John uh, chapter 21, uh, verses 15 through 19. This is God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your scriptures, for uh, just the evidence of your work in the lives of normal people like the Apostle Peter. Father, I pray that you would help us as we think about what it means to follow you through uh, the ups and downs of this journey we call faith. We pray that you would help us to understand what it means to follow you with our lives, but also, Lord, to follow you through our mistakes and through our sins and what the restoration of the gospel means for us. So make that clear to us this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll have to tell you that we've all made mistakes. We've all experienced failures in our lives, and uh, sometimes those mistakes and those uh, sins, they, they haunt us. Uh, they keep us awake at night, and we wish that there was something we could do to change them. We wish we could go back and change the things that we've done, but we know that we can't. And so the question becomes, what do we do with these things? What do we do with them? Well, for some, their uh, failures motivate them to work a life of what we call penance. And what that means is that we live in light of failures and mistakes, and we want to somehow fix them, somehow change them, and so we need to work doubly hard to make up for those things that we've done. Think for a second about the husband who is uh, sitting in the florist looking at all the different types of bouquets that he could buy and wondering, how big of a bouquet do I need to buy to make up for this mistake that I've made uh, with my wife or with my family? And in many ways, that's our natural response. Our natural response to our, our mistakes and our failures are to somehow work some sort of penance to uh, work our way back into favor with that person that we've harmed, or even to work our way back into favor with God. But I think as we'll see this morning, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus isn't interested in our penance. Jesus is interested in our restoration. So this morning, what I want us to do is look at the restoration of Peter, what that meant for his life, and I think what we will see what it, means for him, what it meant for him, what it means for us, is often that it means a call to care and finally a call to suffer. But let's start by looking first at, at Peter's restoration. And if you were with us last week, I begged you to come back because we got to see Peter's failure last week. And this week, we get to see what God does with Peter's failure. Uh, but if you weren't with us last week or you don't remember the story, Peter had really dug himself into a very big hole when it came to his relationship with Jesus. Uh, just days before this, at their last meal together, Jesus uh, dropped a bomb amongst his disciples. He looked at all his disciples over that last supper, and he said, one of you is going to betray me. And of course, all the disciples begin to look at one another, wondering, well, who's it going to be? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? Who's it going to be that's going to betray Jesus? And Peter knew one thing in that moment, he knew that more than anything, it was not going to be him. So he professes his undying faithfulness to Jesus. He says to Jesus, I'm going to walk by your side until the very end. But of course, we know that just hours later, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is arrested and all of his disciples scatter. They run away. Peter scatters, but he also wants to sort of follow at a safe distance because 
He wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And of course, we know from the story that Jesus is carried into uh, the home of the high priest and he's being interrogated by the high priest and the religious professionals of his day in this high stakes courtroom drama. And in spite of all the pressure that Jesus is facing in this moment, he stands up to that pressure, he admits to who he truly is, and he signs his death warrant in that moment. What we also know is that while all this is happening, Peter, meanwhile, is standing outside of the home of the high priest, and he is warming himself by the fire. He's also questioned, just as Jesus was, but he's questioned in a, in a much less pressure situation than Jesus was facing. We learn the two servant girls and a bystander question Peter about his relationship with Jesus. And three times, Peter denies even knowing who Jesus was. And after that third denial, the rooster crows and Peter realizes exactly what he has done and he breaks down, weeping into a pile of tears. What's interesting about after this is Peter sort of disappears for at least a day or so. And so while Jesus is being mocked and beaten and spit upon, while Jesus is being crucified, while Jesus breathes his final breath, while he's being taken down from the cross and placed in a grave, Peter is nowhere to be found. He's not around, he's nowhere to be seen. And we have to wonder that he was probably, no doubt, wrestling with not just what was happening to Jesus in that moment, but what he had done by denying Jesus in that most important time. Peter doesn't really show up again until Sunday morning when he visits a tomb that is empty. He'd heard reports that this tomb was empty, and so he goes to visit it, and he finds that that tomb is empty. And then just hours later, Jesus is there with him. He is alive. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He has beaten the grave. He has beaten sin. He has beaten death itself. And so for Peter, as happy as he was to see Jesus resurrected from the dead, he had to feel in the pit of his stomach that there was still a conversation that needed to happen. And that conversation would indeed come, and it comes in our passage this morning. And just to set the scene for what's happening here, John tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples, by and large, uh, went back to doing what they were doing before they had initially met Jesus. They went back to fishing. And so one morning, all the disciples are out fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, and It tells us that they had been fishing all night, as was their custom, and they had caught nothing that evening. And now the sun was rising, and they had no fish to show for all of their evening of effort. And all of a sudden, a man who they see in the distance is standing on the shore, and they didn't recognize who this man was, but he told them to put their nets out just once more on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they caught more fish than their nets can even handle. Now, Peter, is he sitting in the boat, and I love this moment in Peter's story. Peter is sitting in the boat, and he immediately realizes 
that it was Jesus who was standing on the shore. And so what does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat. He swims to shore. He, had, he refused to wait for the boat to sort of paddle back to the shore. It was Jesus, and Peter had to be near Jesus in that moment. And so there's this great uh, reuniting. They share a meal together. They share a breakfast with one another on the shore of the sea. But as that fire, that breakfast fire, is dying down and their stomachs was, were full, Jesus and Peter finally had the conversation that both of them knew was coming. In that conversation, Peter has an opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus. Peter gets an affirmation for every single one of his denials. And through that quiet, intimate conversation by the fire, Peter is restored to Jesus. What that means is that Peter's greatest mistake, that it happened by a small charcoal fire in the middle of the night, had turned into Peter's restoration, which happened around another small fire at the very break of dawn. And so what that meant for Peter was that his greatest mistake would not need to define his life nor his identity. It meant that Peter now would no longer have to live with regret, wishing that he could somehow change what he had done. But it also meant that Peter would not need to work any sort of penance or somehow earn his way back into Jesus's favor, somehow merit his way back into Jesus's liking. Instead, the grace of Jesus was bigger than Peter's greatest sin. And now the grace of Jesus would be the source of his identity, and it would be the very foundation that he would build his life upon. Friends, this story is powerful because it means something to us as well. Of course, all of us, we, lived with, we live with past failures. We live with past sins, past regrets, and we often feel like they put a stain upon our lives. And, and no matter how hard we try, we just can't clean up that stain. We just can't remove it from our story. No matter how much we try to work these mistakes off, we can't. No matter how, much hard, no matter how hard we try to earn our way back to God, we just can't. But the good news is that Jesus isn't interested in our penance. He is only interested in our restoration. The gospel tells us that only through faith in him and in his work of salvation on our behalf can you and I be restored. Because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, you and I, like Peter, we can experience grace. We have to come to the end of ourselves recognizing that no amount of penance will do the trick. Instead, we need Jesus to restore us at our most fundamental level. And so my encouragement to you is this. Do what Peter does. Jump out of whatever boat that you are living in and run to Jesus. Give up the futility of trying to earn your way back to him and instead rest in his free gift of grace. Rest in the restoration that comes from Jesus.
I read a great quote uh, by Bob Goff this week, and it said this, God finds us in the holes that we dig for ourselves, and where we see failures, God sees foundations. Where we see failures, God sees foundations. Peter, no doubt, was wrestling with his failure here, but Jesus wanted to see that actually his failure would now become the foundation for his calling. And so we see for Peter here, all of this meant a call to care. It meant a call to care. Three times Peter's questioned about his love for Jesus, and three times Peter professes his love for Jesus, but with each profession, Peter is reminded of his call. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. He says to him, tend my sheep. He says to him a third time, feed my sheep. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the evidence of Peter's restoration and his love for Jesus, the evidence of all this is his care for other people. Now, a lot of people have wondered what Jesus meant by that first initial question that he offers to Peter. If you look at that first question, he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, this is, this is one of these great mysteries of the scriptures because we have no idea what Jesus is, is talking about. He's probably, he's probably pointing to something when he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? But of course, we don't know exactly what Jesus is pointing at. We don't know what he's referring to. Um, and, and a lot of people have speculated it was probably one of two things that Jesus was referring to when he asked Peter this question. Uh, some think that Jesus is no doubt pointing to the disciples and the crowd that is around them. And if that's the case, then Peter is being asked by Jesus, Peter, do you love me more than these, more than the disciples that are around us, more than the crowd that is gathered here this morning? Is Peter's relationship with Jesus the most important relationship in his life? And if that's what's going on, this really is an apt question for Peter to wrestle with. Because as we think about his failure, we see him caving to the pressure of the crowd that is around him through all of those denials. And so maybe Jesus is pointing to the crowd. Maybe he's pointing to the other disciples. Or what Jesus could be pointing to is the fish. Think about this. Uh, think about the catch, the fish that are all around them as a result of this miracle that Jesus had performed. And if that's what Jesus is pointing to, then Jesus is asking Peter whether he loves him more than all these things, all this fish, all these things around him, effectively saying, Peter, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than your wealth? Do you love me more than your profession? And if so, that's, that's probably a very timely question for Peter as well, because let's face it, this is probably the biggest catch of Peter's entire life, right? This is probably uh, means that Peter would at least be financially set for quite some time because of this catch that they had just accomplished. This was probably the most successful day ever for Peter, professionally speaking. 
And so that's an apt question for Peter at this moment. Well, either way, either way, I believe this question that Jesus puts to Peter is important. Do you love me more than these things? And I think that question is very important for us as well as we consider what it means to follow Jesus. And so the question this passage puts to us is, do you and I, do we love Jesus more than the crowd? Do you love Jesus more than the adulation, more than the fame, more than the respect and the reputation of others? Do you love Jesus more than the approval of other people in your lives? Do you love Jesus more than the crowd? Or, or do you love Jesus more than your career? Do you love Jesus more than the success, more than the wealth, more than the accomplishment that this world often has for others? Well, as you wrestle with that question, you have to ask, what's the proof of it? Well, the proof of that love, the proof of you loving Jesus more than all these other things is your care for others. Jesus, of course, had already said this. In John chapter 13, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so, of course, what we see is that when you start loving Jesus above all these other things, when you start loving Jesus above the crowd, when you start loving him above the adulation and the success and the reputation and the wealth and the achievement, when you love Jesus above all the idols of the culture that are around us, then you inevitably will look different. You will look strange in all the best ways because your love for Jesus and your love for others above all these other things will eventually make you stand out. It will make you different. It will prove to others that there is something unique and different about your life. The love of Jesus for you will be on display as you love other people. That's what this call to care is really all about. But sometimes this call, it means a call to care, but also what we discover sometimes is that it is also a call to suffer. It's a call to care, but also at times is a call to suffer. And we certainly see that it meant that for Peter. Verse 19, it says this, and this Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What history tells us is this, that Peter would indeed after this moment follow the path that Jesus walked. And there is a lot of good historical record out there to show that Peter himself would have his arms stretched out just as Jesus was, that Peter himself would be crucified for following Jesus till the end. You see, Peter's call, yeah, it, Peter's restoration certainly meant a call to care and to love, but it also meant a call to suffer. And that's why one commentator said that love inevitably involves not only responsibility, but also sacrifice. 
Our restoration means this call to care, and sometimes it means for all of us a call to suffer. This is what 2 Timothy 3 really talks about and says, indeed, all, all, catch that, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who follow Jesus will be persecuted. And what that means for us is this. When we no longer live for the idols of the culture that is around us, when we no longer live for the crowd, when we live for Jesus, sometimes that means for us a call to suffer. And so where do we go with all of this? What do we do? Where do we go with all our failures, with all our sins, with all our missteps, with all our messiness? Well, we can learn from the Peter story that we could try to strive hard. We could try to work really hard to somehow make up for our failures in our sins. We could spend a life working penance, but none of it at the end of the day will truly restore you to Jesus. Friends, Jesus alone offers you restoration. But with that restoration comes a call to care and at times a call to suffer. It may not be the easy path, but it is the only path to forgiveness, the only path to the kingdom of God, and the only path to life eternal. Let's pray.